Hey there, it's time once again for Transformation Radio. And now as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament, our narrative today will be from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. We'll go through chapter 3, verse 13. Although Paul had the right to receive financial support from the people he taught, he supported himself as a tent maker so that he wouldn't be a burden to the new Thessalonian believers. Now, no loving father would neglect the safety of his children, allowing them to walk into circumstances that might be harmful or fatal. In the same way, we must take new believers under our wing until they're mature enough to stand firm in their faith. We must help new Christians become strong enough to influence others for the sake of the good news. Now, just as the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were persecuted by other Jews, so the Gentile Christians in Thessalonica were persecuted by their fellow Gentiles. Persecution is discouraging, especially when it comes from your own people. When you take a stand for Christ, you may face opposition, disapproval, and ridicule from your neighbors, friends, even family members. When Paul refers to the Jews, he's talking about certain Jews who oppose his preaching of the good news. He does not mean all Jews. Many of Paul's converts were Jewish. Paul himself, don't forget, was a Jew. Now, having believed the good news and accepted new life in Christ, apparently many Thessalonians thought they would uh, be protected from death until Christ returned. Then when believers began to die under persecution, some Thessalonian Christians started to question their faith. Many of Paul's comments here throughout uh, this letter were addressed to these people as he explained what happens when believers die. And with that, let's begin our reading today here in the New Testament. October 10th, the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, through chapter 3, verse 13. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we, Paul and his co-workers, worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living, so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is, and this word continues to work in you who believe. And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea who, because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. For some of the Jews kill the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They fail to please God and work against all humanity as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins. But the anger of God has caught up with them at last. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us, 
After all, what gives us hope and joy, and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when He returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. But you know that we are destined for such troubles, even while we were with you. We warned you that troubles would soon come, and they did, as well you know. This is why, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you, and that our work had been useless. But now Timothy has just returned, bringing us good news about your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. So we have been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith. It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. How we thank God for you. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Night and day we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again to fill the gaps in your faith. May God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. May He, as a result, make your hearts strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all His holy people. Amen. And now, our reading from the book of Psalms, Psalm 80, verses 1 through 19. Here's some of what we'll find out here today in this psalm as we read. Cherubim are mighty angels. That God is enthroned above the cherubim is a reminder of His presence on the Ark of the Covenant. Twice, the writer here calls on God to turn us again to yourself. Before God can turn us to Himself, we must turn away from sin Repentance involves humbling ourselves and turning to God to receive His forgiveness. As we turn to God, He helps us see ourselves, including our sin, more clearly. Then as we see our sin, we must repeat the process of repentance. Only then can we constantly be restored to fellowship with God. The son of your choice, that's a term that we'll read here in the Psalms today, is probably not the Messiah, but Israel, whom God calls elsewhere his firstborn son. The psalm writer is making a plea that God would restore his mercy to Israel, the people he chose to bring his message into the world. Psalm 80, verses 1 through 19. For the choir director, a psalm of Asaph, to be sung to the tune, Lilies of the Covenant. Please listen, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph's descendants like a flock. O God, enthroned above the cherubim, display your radiant glory to Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Show us your mighty power. Come to rescue us. Turn us again to yourself, O God. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. O Lord God of heaven's armies, how long will you be angry with our prayers? You have fed us with sorrow 
and made us drink tears by the bucketful. You have made us the scorn of neighboring nations. Our enemies treat us as a joke. Turn us again to yourself, O God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. You brought us from Egypt like a grapevine. You drove away the pagan nations and transplanted us into your land. You cleared the ground for us, and we took root and filled the land. Our shade covered the mountains. Our branches covered the mighty cedars. We spread our branches west to the Mediterranean Sea. Our shoots spread east to the Euphrates River. But now, why have you broken down our walls, so that all who pass by may steal our fruit? The wild boar from the forest devours it, and the wild animals feed on it. Come back, we beg you, O God of heaven's armies. Look down from heaven and see our plight. Take care of this grapevine that you yourself have planted, this sun you have raised for yourself, for we are chopped up and burned by our enemies. May they perish at the sight of your frown. Strengthen the man you love, the son of your choice. Then we will never abandon you again. Revive us so we can call on your name once more. Turn us again to yourself, O Lord God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 1 through 5. These are more proverbs of Solomon, collected by the advisors of King Hezekiah of Judah. It is God's privilege to conceal things and the king's privilege to discover them. No one can comprehend the height of heaven, the depth of the earth, or all that goes on in the king's mind. Remove the impurities from silver, and the sterling will be ready for the silversmith. Remove the wicked from the king's court, and his reign will be made secure by justice. The following audio is from the Refuge Church. More information about the Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Let's jump into Romans, Romans 15, 1 through 13. And our text says this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
you may abound in hope. And so Paul in this section uh, pretty much summarizes the main thrust of this whole previous, you know, seven weeks. And so the first, the first exhortation, the first thing that he kind of commands us to do is, is summarized with this idea of just strengthen others. Strengthen others. So verse 1 through 3 read, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so the ESV study Bible is titled this section, The Example of Christ. The Example of Christ. So Paul, Paul uses strong language here. You know, Paul's the guy that wrote, wrote this book, and he uses strong, strong language. He says, bear with the failings of the weak. Bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. And so the word to bear in the Greek means to endure something unpleasant or difficult, whether on one's own behalf or on the behalf of somebody else. And so this is strong language. He's saying to carry, to remove, to endure, to provide for. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with those who are weak. So what does this mean for us? Like, practically speaking, what does this mean? Well, this throws, um, you know, social Darwinism out the window. This throws uh, Ayn Rand's kind of extreme libertarianism uh, or her, her idea of objectivism. If you don't know what any of that means, we're going to talk about it in just a second. But, but it throws those things out the window. And, and what Paul is saying isn't necessarily political in nature. He's not endorsing any party or anything like that. But the idea of survival of the fittest, the idea that we should let the sufferers, the poor, the needy, the mentally ill, those who aren't able to care for themselves, the idea that we should just let that play out, it's not, that's not what Paul is exhorting us to do. It's not the way of Christ. And so, so I just want to go in a little different direction this morning and just kind of unpack this in a different way because Paul is saying something similar to what he's been saying through, through the, whole, the whole text. But Ayn Rand, you might, you might not have heard of her. Um, she was a Russian-American novelist. Uh, philosopher, playwright, and screenwriter. And uh, she was, I think she became popular probably in the, in the early 20th century. Well, that's when she was born. She would have gotten popular around the 1950s or so. But she, she wrote the best-selling novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, and, and for developing this philosophical system called objectivism. Now, I pulled all that from Wikipedia, so you can go look at that for yourself. And, I'm not, and, and what I'm most familiar with is her ideas that she talks about in her novel called Atlas Shrugged. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is, is I've heard her quoted a lot. And especially, um, she's especially influential among libertarians in particular. But she promotes what, she, what is called um, ethical egoism. And so I'll read this, um, read the definition of that, and this will be on the screen. Ethical egoism is the normative ethical position that moral agents ought to do what is in their own self-interest. The opposite of her belief is what is called altruism. So ethical egoism, do, do what's in your own self-interest, and then altruism uh, says is, is this. It's an ethical doctrine that holds that the moral value of an individual's actions depends solely on the impact on other individuals, regardless of the consequences on the individual itself. And so you've got these two completely opposite ideas. You've got ethical egoism that says, hey, do whatever's in your own self-interest. And then you've got altruism, which says, hey, do um, the good for the other person, despite what it may incur on yourself. 
No, I'm not promoting either of these ideas. Um, instead of boxing Christianity within some sort of man-made, you know, socially constructed paradigms, I think we can learn from both of these, but I don't necessarily think the Bible promotes either. And what we have to see in our text is that Paul has been hammering at this idea of serving your neighbor. And so I want to approach this from, from a little bit different perspective this morning. See, Ayn Rand, the, the lady that we're talking about, she grew up in socialist Russia, socialist Russia. And so she was of Jewish descent. She was a part of the bourgeois, the upper middle class. And um, she saw her successful father, who was a businessman, who was a pharmacist. His, his company, his business was confiscated from him. They were forced to move out from their home. And so all of a sudden, you know, her good education, all these sorts of things were kind of thrown out. She was, she experienced hunger. She experienced displacement. She experienced, you know, she wasn't in the home that they grew up in. And so obviously this stirred within her a lot of fear, a lot of anger, a lot of hurt. And so eventually she arrived in America and she began writing. And so in her fiction novel, Atlas Shrugged, she created um, her own philosophical idea, which is called objectivism. And so this is, this is what she kind of um, pushed forward. So Rand writes about the essence of objectivism as being this, and this will be on the screen. She believes this, that the concept of man, she believes in the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life with productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason as his only absolute. And so maybe you're picking up on some of where she's coming from, but she also wrote about the virtue of selfishness. The virtue of selfishness. And if you've been here for the past few weeks, what we've talked about is how we can insert our own story into our theology. We can, we can insert our own story into how we view God. And, and, th- and this is an example of that. See, uh, she, saw in, she saw the injustice and she saw the suffering within, within socialist Russia. And so she reacted and developed a philosophy that was completely opposite. It was the polar opposite of that. A sort of social Darwinism, right? A, a survival of the fittest. And so we know that this isn't what the gospel promotes. We know that this isn't, this isn't what God exhorts us to do. Um, kind of the, the polar opposite, but I think he wasn't writing this in response to Rand, but he could have, I think. But Tim Keller writes this in his book, Prodigal God. He says, Jesus hates suffering, injustice, evil, and death so much, he came and experienced it to defeat it. And someday, to wipe the world clean of it. Knowing all this, Christians cannot be passive about hunger, sickness, and injustice. Karl Marx and others have charged that religion is the opiate of the masses. That is, it's a sedative that makes people passive towards injustice because there will be, you know, a pie in the sky by and by. That may be true of some religions that teach people that this material world is unimportant or illusory. Christianity, however, teaches that God hates the suffering and the oppression of this material world so much he was willing to get involved in it and fight against it. Properly understood, Christianity is by no means the opiate of the people. It's more like the smelling salts. Now, that was probably pretty captivating until the end. What are smelling salts? 
Smelling salts are chemical compounds that are used for arousing someone's consciousness. And so back in one of the world wars, they would have these chemical compounds that if someone was shot, if somebody was hurt and they were, they were, they were starting to lose consciousness, they would, they would take these chemicals and put them, put them up to their face and it would arouse their consciousness. What Tim Keller is saying is that Christianity is not a drug that stupefies us, but it's a compound that wakes us to life. So we believe that the Bible teaches of the Imago Dei. What does that mean? It's, it's the image of God. The image of God. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Human beings are made in the image of God. This is what distinguishes us from any other life form. We are made in God's image. We, we could spend all kinds of time here, and eventually I want to. But this is why... This is why, because of the Imago Dei, this is why it's more than just an abortion issue. It's more than just a murder issue. It's more than just a race issue. It's more than just a class issue. It's an Imago Dei issue. We're made as human beings in the image of God. In the image of God, which means that we're to strengthen others, which means that we're to serve our neighbor, which means we're to to defer to the other person. Not because we have to, but because we choose to. Not by force, but by choice. We're to defer to our enemies, we're to love our enemies. Why? Because we're image bearers of God, they're image bearers of God. This all goes back to who God is. To who God is. It goes back to God and who God is. God is Trinitarian, which means God is three in one. How is that, what what practical implications does that mean for us? If God has always been three in one, then that means God is a community of persons. And for us to model God, it means we're made for community. We're not made for ourselves, but we're made for selfless, sacrificial, generous, interpersonal love. We image God by loving God's people. We image God by loving our spouse. We image God by loving our neighbor. We image God by loving our enemy. So think of the gospel. Think of the gospel in light of this. God is so patient with us that Jesus, his son, willingly steps into our world. Not only that, but Jesus takes on flesh. So Jesus feels the same human longings that we feel. Jesus grows weary in the flesh like we grow weary. Jesus feels the mortality, the angst, the temptations of being human. And yet Jesus does not sin. Jesus loves us and serves us and gives his life for us. This is the gospel, right? And so we're to model Christ by strengthening others, by loving others, especially those that are not like us. And this is where, as I studied this, this text this week, it, can, it just began to convict me because, man, one of the things that has really begun to, to strike me is, is I pray that, that the church, our church, but the church, would begin to look more and more like the church that we'll see in heaven. What do I mean by that? I'm praying that, I'm praying for racial reconciliation, for class reconciliation, for, for ethnic reconciliation. See, because, I mean, think about it. And in this, I mean, I've been reading articles about how the American church is so segregated. 
And, and I don't know if you noticed, but most of us are Anglos. What does that mean? It means we're white folk, most of us. Mainly from the suburbs. And so I think in many ways, we go through things, but we don't understand suffering. We don't understand suffering. You know, your washing machine broke. Your, uh, you know, your, your bills fluctuated a little bit. Um, your son didn't make the football team. Listen, I don't want to diminish your struggles, but hear me, you're a blessed people. You're a blessed people. If you're stressed over which house to buy because you think the one you have isn't big enough, listen, you're blessed. You have a home. And we can't even begin to strengthen other people until we can see the world outside of ourselves. And might I add, some of you, some of us, are so hostile to those that aren't like us. And do you know what this is? You know what the Bible calls this? Sin. And so we need to repent. We need to ask God to change our hearts. We need to ask ourselves, who would Jesus turn away? Who would Jesus refuse to love? Who would Jesus decide not to talk to? (laughs) Too painful? All right, let's move on. Um, The room got really quiet. We're going to come back there, though, so don't worry. Um, Second point in the text that we see. Paul kind of brings up the idea that the Old Testament is written for our encouragement and our instruction. And so verse 4 through 7 says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So this morning... If you're not encouraged, if you're not walking in endurance, if you're overly dependent, if you're hopeless, I would argue that you're probably not immersing yourself in God's word. Because according to this text, yes, of course the Bible, yes, life is difficult. Yes, we go through trials. Yes, all things aren't going to be clear all the time. We might not always know what the right thing or the wrong thing to do is. But if we're immersed in God's word, if we're immersed in God's scriptures, that is where we can find encouragement and hope. According, That's what Paul is saying here. Now it goes on. It says, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with who? With yourself? No, with one another. In accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So from this, we see that as we approach the Bible and as we're encouraged, as we receive instruction, that what, we, what, what Paul's saying is that that's not for yourself. But that together, the church would glorify God and welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, as Christ has welcomed us. We welcome others as Christ has welcomed. We know that the gospel says we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't come to God and God's like, oh, I want that guy on my team. No, we came as broken sinners. And Jesus, because of what he did, accepts us. 
So we welcome others as God has welcomed us, all for God's glory. So another question, are you discouraged this morning? And instead of, instead of asking any other diagnostic question, instead of giving you some sort of worldly advice or self-help um, advice, let me ask you this. Are you soaking your soul in the word of God? Are you presenting yourself before the Savior of the universe and meditating on his truths that are found in the Bible? Are you reading God's word and asking him to transform you more and more into his likeness? Now, man, you know what? You're probably convicted at this point. I want to be honest. I'm convicted. I'm convicted. I had to, I had, you know, on Friday, I just, I had to stop as I was looking through this and I had to pray and just confess and repent to God because I haven't been practicing this, practicing this faithfully. And what has that produced? As I'm seeing the, the, you know, Paul say, hey, you're going to find encouragement and instruction and all these things in the word. And what I've realized is lately the fruit that's been coming from me is just anxiety and distraction and busyness and, and doubt and fear and unbelief and all these sorts of things. And I haven't just been immersing myself in God and who God is. I haven't been going to, to, going to the word for life. I've been trying to work harder through effort. I think it's what a lot of us do. But what, 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 what God reminded me is I need, I need God more than anything else in the world. You need God more than anything else in this world. And so if we're thirsty, if we're weary, before we start looking for water elsewhere, I think the Bible suggests that we go to the one who declares in John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I just love how God reminded me of that verse on Friday. You're searching for things that you will not find joy in until you turn to Christ. And so what we know here is that there's a direct correlation with the condition of our soul and the time that we've spent communing with the God of the Bible. There's a direct correlation with the condition of our soul in the time that we've spent immersing ourselves, communing with the God of the Bible. So are you weary? Are you discouraged? Are you hopeless? Are you prejudiced? Are you not loving your neighbor? What if your neighbor's a Muslim? Are you selfish? Are you strengthening others? Don't be discouraged. Because hear me, if you're not doing these things, the last, you know, if you feel like your life is a wreck right now, I don't want you to begin just making a bunch of lists of how you're going to change yourself. Instead, I want, I want you to do one relational thing. I would just exhort you to be with God. To open up God's word and ask the Lord to speak to you, to change you, to encourage you, to give you hope. Because again, Christianity teaches that you, you don't change you. You don't fix you. And so I think if you, if you open up your word and you, and you ask God to begin, God, what, what, what does this mean for me right here? You'll begin to change. How so? Because you'll become more like Christ. 
Focus on Christ and you'll become more like Christ. Kind of crazy, huh? So we're to strengthen others is our first point. The second point is the scripture gives us encouragement and hope that we may endure and begin to welcome others as Christ has welcomed us. And then lastly, Paul sums all this up, okay? And really the big idea, he says, Christ is the hope for Jews and Gentiles. What does this mean for us? Well, let's read 8 through 13 again. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to patriarchs, given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And then 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So what's he mean by that first verse? For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Well, what verse 8 is saying is that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by coming and saving Israel, by coming and saving the Jews, by becoming the Messiah, by coming and, and fulfilling all that he said in the Old Testament. And so this shows God's truthfulness, God's faithful, God's honest, God's just. God never goes back on his promises, but then he goes on. Nine, he says, in order, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, out as it is written, and he goes on and he says all those other things. He, he quotes 2 Samuel 22.50, Deuteronomy 32.43, Psalm 117.1, and Isaiah 11.1. 1. And what we have to understand is what Paul is doing is what he's already done in Romans is Paul shows us that God, yes, he fulfilled the Old Testament law, but not only for Israel. He did fulfill the law for Israel, but Jesus fulfilled the law for all people. The Gentiles, what that represents is the people that are not a people, the people that are not God's people. The Gentiles are you and me, everybody. And so do you realize this? The gospel is not just for Anglos. The gospel is not just for white people. The gospel is not just for Americans. The gospel is not just for Israelites. The gospel's for blacks and Hispanics and and Asians and Arabs. The gospel's for Muslims and Mormons and Hindus and Buddhists. And I'm not promoting some sort of universalism. I'm saying it's by the gospel that we're saved and, it's, and the gospel is for all people. Amen? And so do we see the people that we're different from? Do we see those people as image bearers of God? Because that's what they are. Do we see the folks that are different from us? And do we, do we see them as God's image bearers? Do we see the Imago Dei in them? Because that's what they are. Do we see them as our neighbors? Do we see them as the people that Paul is exhorting us to strengthen? To serve, to proclaim the gospel to? When I read this text, you know, much time has passed. A lot of time has passed, but the same struggle for the Jewish and Roman Christians is the same struggle for us. Because what we know is the Jewish people despised the pagan Gentiles. 
because they were sinners and they were, they were on the other side of the tracks and they just didn't like them. And we know that the Jewish people, they, they hated the Romans because, because the Romans oppressed them. The Romans, you know, ruled them fiercely and they, they, they would have loved for the Romans to be punished. And yet, here is Paul calling them their neighbors. And Paul, this, this is the guy, if you remember, uh, he has a dark past of murdering Christians. And God took Paul, God chose Paul of all people. I mean, I'm sure he could have picked a better guy, right? I'm sure there was a better candidate, but, but God chose Paul to be the apostle that would write the majority of the New Testament. And so do you think that there's some implications there for us? I would think so. There is no chosen race. There is no specific people group that God looks down on with favor. Christ is the hope of all people. Christ is the pinnacle of redemption for all people. We're all lost without Christ. Jesus is the way. Jesus is our hope. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, but you're a cho- I love this because he starts out with some good news and then, he, and then he sa- he, so he says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he reminds them, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, referring to the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds, this is crazy, he upholds the universe by the, wor- by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we're in the covenant of grace, the Bible teaches. Jesus has come. Jesus is the point. You're not the point. I'm not the point. We want to be the point. But Jesus is. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He upholds the universe by his very word. He makes purification for our sins. Jesus is the point. And so if you come to know Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you surrender your life, repent of your sins, if you come to Jesus, that's where hope is found. That's ultimately what it means to be a living sacrifice. That your life is an ongoing sacrifice for the glory of God towards the worship of Jesus. If we understand this, it will create certain fruit in our lives. What does that mean? It means, you know, uh, we won't be so critical. We won't be so selfish. We won't be so insular. We won't be prejudiced. We won't be prideful. We won't lust after fleshly things. Why? Because we're being made into the likeness of Christ. The one who matters. The one who rules and reigns. And experientially, this is where peace is found. This is where joy is found. This is where purpose abounds for you. 
And so in closing, I've taken three summary points that theologian Douglas Moo states, just summing up, summing up this whole, you know, Romans 12 through 15. I put them in my own words. And he says, one, we have to deal with people where they are. And man, we could, we could unpack a whole sermon in that. But we have, we, have to deal, we have to deal with people where they are. Jesus doesn't love a future version of you. Jesus loves you where you're at. Jesus accepts you where you're at. So accept people where they are. Two, don't get stuck on moral issues where the Bible's not stuck. All right? If you want to know more about that, uh, we two, spent two weeks on Romans 14. That was basically what it was about. And the big underlying theme through all of this three, the bottom line is the unity of the church. What's the church? The church is you and I. The church is, is Christians. And so our unity, the fact that we love one another, should be, should be underlying everything we do. And then 13, he says this. Again, we're closing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May this be our benediction. May this be our blessing to put your faith in Christ, to, that, that the hope of God would fill you with joy, peace, and that, and that the Holy Spirit would allow you to abound in this hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us through the word, for dwelling amongst us as, as, a, as a human being in the flesh, living a sinless life, taking away from us all of our sin on the cross, resurrecting God, foreshadowing what we will all experience, being with you once again. I pray, Lord, that we would, man, we hear it all throughout this text, but that just like Paul exhorts us to do. And God, I know, I know it's, I know it's, it's not in your word, but I can just imagine Paul as he's exhorting everyone to serve their neighbor. He's just imagining, he's seeing himself in the mirror and how he used to just murder Christians and, and drag Christians into the street and take them away to jail and, I can just I can just sense the conviction and and he's he's experienced grace. And so he wants to show grace. And I just pray that we wouldn't see ourselves as the point. We wouldn't see ourselves as good. Not so that we can beat up on ourselves and so that we can get down on ourselves, but that we would realize that man, you've shown us grace. And we're called to show others grace. I pray that you'd alleviate fears that we have about the other, whoever the other is. Because we'd be not naive to think that there's not fear in this room. There's not prejudice in this room. There's not a lack of faith in this room. There's not unbelief in this room. And we just ask God that you would convict us and that you would heal our hearts. Because you've called us to love and to serve and to be neighbors with all people. In the first book of the Bible, the first chapter informs us of that. The Imago Dei, we are made in your image, in your likeness. Praise you for that. So God, I pray that we would be, each of us, that you, you would just draw us near to you.
that we would put our faith in you, that we would pursue you, that we would seek truth about you, that we wouldn't be scared to ask all the crazy questions that we have because you can handle that. All the doubts that we have, the fears that we have, you can handle those things. I pray that we'd ask them, that we'd pursue truth, and that you'd reveal yourself to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. This time, the hosts are going to get ready. So if you want to prepare to give through our uh, through offering. And we just, uh, simply put, God's been so generous to us. We've heard it over and over and over again. And as Christians, we want to be generous. We want to be generous. And so if you call Refuge Church home, we encourage you to, uh, to give generously, to give sacrificially, to give regularly, to give joyfully um, as an act of worship to God. And so I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing and then we will give, all right? Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you for all that you've given us. And I just pray that you'd bless what we are about to give, that you would use it to advance your purposes, that you would use it to, um, to bless the refuge ministry. You'd use it to bless, God, um, all the people that, that are being served through um, the refuge, through the church, through the ministry, that, God, you'd be ex- exalted, you'd be praised. And, God, um, we, just, we just thank you for what you've given us, and we just want to use it for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about the Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.